Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, good afternoon for some and good evening for others, uh, depending on where you are on planet Earth at this moment. Uh, welcome to uh, one of the National Council on US Arab Relations online conversations on pressing contemporary issues uh, that pertain not just to the United States, not just to its Arab friends, its Arab partners, its Arab allies, uh, but also the other regions uh, that have as their Arab partners, friends, and allies, a number of uh, issues that pertain to policies, uh, national positions, uh, various actions that uh, state actors, non-state actors can take, and also attitudes. And uh, all four of those uh, are hinged upon, in many cases, education and empathy not apathy, not sympathy necessarily, but certainly not antipathy, no call for that. But empathy is something that the United States has never been uh, charged with uh, being in surplus of. Uh, this comes with the United States uh, self-perception as the world's uh, sole indispensable superpower, to paraphrase the uh, language of the uh, former Secretary of State Madeleine, Madeleine Albright. But these issues uh, could not be more timely, could not be more relevant. And here we are, this year is the half century mark where Great Britain, which was responsible for regional security and stability for fully a century and a half from the mid 19th century straight up through to the autumn of 1971, uh, when uh, it abrogated the last remaining of its treaty whereby the British uh, were responsible for the foreign relations and the defense of the last remaining nine uh, Eastern Arabian Emirates, Bahrain, Qatar, and seven that became the United Arab Emirates. We're not talking about Kuwait, which obtained its national sovereignty, political independence, territorial integrity in 1961, only to have it violated by uh, Iraqi aggression in 1990, 1991. We're not talking about Saudi Arabia, which is one of the handful of uh, countries that in the 20th century did not emerge uh, as members of the United Nations out from under one or another form of Western imperial rule. And we're not talking about the Sultanate of Oman in that regard either, which also was nationally sovereign, uh, but delegated, uh, derogated various aspects of its foreign relations and defense uh, to Great Britain for a almost comparable amount of time. Uh, so we're focusing on a region that in the popular perception the stereotypes uh, believes that this is laced with two kinds of oil, turmoil and the other kind. And today we'll be focusing primarily on the latter. Uh, admittedly, uh, oil and gas, other derivatives of hydrocarbon fuels are things and people like to control things to the degree that they can. Um, and there are legitimate outsider interests, concerns, needs, and key foreign policy objectives, but no less important and arguably as important, if not more important, because it is their oil, their gas, and yet their responsibilities are keen and, and hardly new uh, to the stage. Uh, they are aware that this is the commodity that drives the economic energies of every economy on the planet, 
the large ones, the small ones, the medium-sized ones, the new ones, the old ones, and others all in between. Uh, so this is truly a globally vital strategic region, as are its peoples, as are its governments, as are its legitimate needs, its legitimate concerns, its legitimate interests, its legitimate objectives. To help us comprehend some of the uncertainties and the difficulties for diagnosis and analysis and to discern in proper priority order trends and indications which are key uh, to corporate mindsets regarding trade, regarding investment, regarding technology cooperation, and regarding America's national security and related interests, but so too of China's and India's uh, national security and related economic uh, interests. Dr. Paul Sullivan is a primary speaker who will address these and related issues on the longer term implications of these uncertainties uh, for the region and for uh, the areas uh, beyond. Uh, Dr. Sullivan has been the key fixture uh, for the last 22 years at the National Defense University, the academic uh, arm of the U.S. Department of Defense. He's been an adjunct professor on economic security issues and challenges uh, at Georgetown University. He's an ongoing uh, uh, professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, also on energy and security issues globally, regionally, interregionally, nationally. Uh, to moderate this session, uh, we have uh, uh, Colonel David DeRoche. Uh, both of these individuals have been longtime associates uh, and alumni of one or more of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations Programs. I happen to be the founding president and the chief executive officer of the National Council. We were established in 1983 as a nonprofit, non-governmental educational organization. Our vision is to place the overall Arab-U.S. relationship on a sounder, firmer footing than it has been, than it is, or is likely to be, unless less enough good minds, leaders of conviction, of courage, of commitment, of will on all sides and work in concert internationally and bilaterally, multilaterally as well, uh, to obtain these objectives or come as close as we can uh, to accomplishing them. Uh, David DeRoche is an alumnus of the National Council's Malone Fellow in Arab and Islamic Studies program to Syria. Um, Dr. Paul Sullivan is the senior National Council International Affairs uh, Fellow. And he's, in addition to what I've already mentioned about his credentials and ongoing associations and affiliations, uh, he's associated with the King Faisal uh, Center for Islamic Studies and Research in Riyadh. Without further ado, Dr. Sullivan. Well, thank you, John Duke. And by the way, I don't teach at SICE, but I do teach at Johns Hopkins, just to be accurate. Uh, the usual caveats I have to do, introduce myself with, even though I'm not anymore with the National Defense University. Uh, these are my opinions alone and do not represent those of any institution that I may be involved with. I'll be looking forward, not backwards. 
energy systems are systems within systems, nested in systems, connected with other systems. In other words, it's much more complicated than what is the price of oil. Oil supply systems could not exist without electricity, without water, without communication systems, without information systems. So many things are connected in. Also, most energy systems are global in their supply chain. They're not local. So what happens in one country can affect another country. There are many nexus issues that need to be considered. We can't consider them all in this talk, uh, but surely uh, there could be some follow-up on this. Energy independence is a myth. Energy interdependence is a reality. What happens with suppliers can affect the consumers. What happens with consumers can affect the suppliers. And in that last comment, what's happening in the United States and Europe and Japan and elsewhere with regard to uh, fighting climate change and changing their uh, laws and uh, backup for oil and gas would have extreme effects on the Middle East and North Africa. The biggest consumers of uh, MENA, Middle East, North Africa, oil and gas are Asia and the EU. We have to focus on what's happening in those two areas also. There will be energy transitions inside of the MENA countries. There will be energy transitions outside of the MENA countries. MENA will be affected by both outside and inside transitions. Also, MENA, Middle East, North Africa is not a monolith. There are sometimes vast differences across countries and the transitions could be very different within and among and across the many countries of the Middle East and North Africa. Yet MENA, and not many people know this, has one of the greatest untapped resources of renewable energy, wind, solar, geothermal, tidal, and more. There are national and regional drivers that have to be considered, uh, economic growth, economic development, political uh, changes, science and philosophical changes in their communication, lobbying. Then there are global and there are regional drivers. There are EU climate goals, Japan's transitions, the Biden climate goals, and whoever comes after him. Climate change, technology change, economic change, government changes, COVID and other shocks to the system can also affect not only those consumers, but the producer states, as we have seen with the disastrous year for oil last year, and possibly a very uncertain oil time coming up. There are numerous scenarios for how the energy transitions can happen. Predicting how this will all turn out is near impossible. If you hear anyone telling you this is how it's gonna turn out in the year 2050, it's best to walk away. There are lots of free variables. It's tough to figure out 2050 or 2030 or even two years or even next year, what's going to happen in the oil market. Energy transitions don't happen overnight. Energy investments don't happen overnight. Most energy investments are large and lumpy investments, sometimes in the tens of billions or billions. Think of the cost of a new refinery, a new nuclear power plant. Even an SMR could cost hundreds of millions of dollars, a small modular reactor, that's what an SMR is. These new projects could take years to plan and development. A normal nuclear power plant could take eight to 20 years, depending on the political and other situations in the country to compete. 
But whoever exports that nuclear power plant to the host country, that exporter has 80 to 100 years of leverage on that host country. An SMR could deploy much more quickly once they're ready. They're not really ready for deployment yet. Wind and solar farms do not spring up overnight. New transportation systems could take decades to sufficiently deploy. And then we have to consider the other side, the decommissioning of refineries, of processing facilities, of sweetening facilities that may have to occur as there may be a decline in the world demand for oil and gas, but that will not happen overnight. Again, transitions should be phased, they should be thoughtful. And also these transitions, these decommissionings are, have massive costs. Some pipelines and port systems may be refitted for other uses, many refineries could not. But even the refitting of the pipelines and the port systems come with massive costs. You can see examples of that of turning our United States LNG import facilities into export facilities. It took years and tens of billions of dollars to make that happen. There are massive investments in MENA and oil, gas, and their associated systems. We have to remember, we're not just talking about putting oil into a tanker. We're talking about everything that goes between the field to that tanker to when the, the gasoline gets in the car, for example. It will take time and money and lots of it to change this. And it also takes political will. And frankly, I don't see much political will in many parts of the world. And my expectation for COP26 is very low. Oil and gas will still be needed in the future for lubricants, chemical production, medicines, fertilizers, pesticides. There are tens of thousands of goods and processes that use these energy sources, oil and gas. And these processes will probably still need these. Paint is often oil-based. Nylon is natural gas-based. These energy sources will not just go away. And as I'm explaining this, think about the disruptions that would occur if this happens too quickly. But the question is, what is too quickly? They will be used for less, less for electric power, for transport, cooling, and so forth. And that's where the EU and the IEA uh, policies are coming in. Also, Biden is focusing on this. And also, oil and gas can be used to create renewables, like hydrogen. And that would be the brown hydrogen. Coal would be the black hydrogen. Nu uh, nuclear would be the pink hydrogen. Green hydrogen would be producing with solar and wind. Uh, I'm not sure why they call nuclear pink hydrogen. I guess that's just uh, the way it happens. There will be electric power transitions in the Middle East, North Africa, and throughout the world. Oil and gas transitions, transport transitions, heating, cooling transitions, industrial energy transitions, commercial energy transitions, residential energy transitions, and petrochemicals and other chemicals transitions. Petrochems, well, look at the first part of that word, petro, it's out of petroleum. And many chemicals use oil and natural gas in their processes. And looking at the military, there could be, and most likely will be, massive changes in operational energy from military into the future. Energy transitions can transform the world economy. And when they happen, they will transform it. They will transform the economies of MENA and the people of MENA and the social contracts in MENA, which makes things rather complicated. These transitions can affect some of the most vulnerable people via the costs of energy, jobs, the development of their country, budgets, and so forth. 
energy price changes can bring instability as we've seen in many places. For example, when the price of petrol uh, has increased in Iran and in many other countries, often riots break out. Leaders need to take care on this because during transitions, price points predictions can be very complicated. Within the Middle East and North Africa, there are the rich and the poor. There are the high capacity and low capacity countries and also failed and failing states. Some countries have lots of investment funds. Some have little, some have close to zero. Some have proper governance and good governance, some not so. And there are massive human development differences across the region and sometimes even within the countries of the region. Also differences within MENA, some are net energy export dependent countries like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE, and Algeria. And then there are net energy import dependent countries like Jordan, Morocco, and Bahrain. Although Bahrain imports oil from Saudi Arabia and exports the refined products. Net energy technology importers, unfortunately, that is every country in the region. There are no net energy technology exporters. There is a huge need for creating innovation inventive capacity in MENA to help it lead its transition instead of it just following the others. Energy transitions affect the entire supply chains for energy systems, getting back to what I said in the beginning of the talk. When planning and thinking about transitions, leaders need to consider the entire supply chain for each transitioning energy source and its ancillary, ancillary services, services and many other aspects of this, excuse me. The government and the private sector will both be needed. Not just one can make this happen. They need to internalize the externalities. If you're looking forward into the climate of the Middle East and North Africa, if nothing is done about CO2 and greenhouse gases, and I believe this, I've been studying this stuff since 1985, at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory when it was called global warming. Right now it's called climate change because it's not just about warming. You have to internalize those externalities and you have to maintain growth and jobs. We all know how important growth and jobs are for the region. Responding to climate change could be a jobs producer and a money maker, but it could also be massively disruptive. What we don't need are forced transitions. We need more natural ones, taking into consideration all the parameters of each country and each region within each country. I recommend a moderate path. Well, I kind of grew up in New England with the following view, the moderation and everything, including moderation. We have to consider the importance of just transitions. Just energy transitions involve disruptions we have to figure out what to do with those who are left behind, both globally and regionally. Those left behind will be harmed and they also end up harming the region, the states, the countries, and even the United States. Some important questions to ask. How might the energy transitions in the Middle East and North Africa affect energy security? That's a very important question environmental and climate security, economic security, national and regional security. Now replace security 
with resilience. The region needs to focus on resilience for the coming complex future. Energy resilience, environmental climate resilience, economic resilience, trying to get off the oil and gas roller coaster, human security resilience, and national and regional resilience. There are threats from climate change. And then there are threats for environmental extremism. There needs to be a balance between these two. Balance is important. One of the solutions to this that I've been thinking about for a long time, but it's a very difficult thing to make happen, is what I call the reverse Malthusian answer. Cut the waste along the energy water food nexus. We waste 65% of the energy we put into our energy systems. We waste water massively, first of all, because of the energy system waste and also because of food waste. 30 to 40% of all the food that's grown is wasted. A lot of water, a lot of energy, a lot of land is, is needed for that food production. Another aspect of this is China's dominance of minerals for the new energy systems. There will be a new geopolitics of energy focusing on minerals and technology states. There could be a shift in the power centers for energy from the Middle East, North Africa, from other OPEC members toward those countries that are more technologically sophisticated for these new energy systems and those that have or control the many minerals required for the new energy systems. China has positioned itself brilliantly on this. It has controlled the rare earths market. It has a huge proportion, 50% of control or ownership of the following, tin, carbon, silicon, iron ore, and aluminum. Bolivia, Argentina, Chile, and Australia are big lithium producers. China has influence in all of those countries, less so in Australia than the others. The Democratic Republic of Congo is the source of 70% of cobalt, which will be required for batteries for the future and other things for the future energy system. In other places where there's a lot of cobalt, Cuba, Philippines, and Russia. I'm not seeing any Middle East countries in this. For copper, you think Chile, Peru, Australia, Russia, and our neighbor Mexico. There will be massive investments in these new mineral systems. And there will be great political leverage enforced and portrayed on some of these countries by the Chinese and others. Over time, we could see the power of the Middle East and North Africa and other oil exporters wane if they don't get with the program for energy. <clears throat> There could be a massive shift in energy geopolitics and geonomics, geoeconomics from oil and gas states to the technology and mineral states. This is very important. This isn't just moving to electric vehicles in Washington, DC, and Riyadh, and Dubai. This has supply chains throughout the world and power centers and power games and geopolitics and geoeconomics. When I take a look at an EV or a change to let's say solar or wind, I'm not just thinking about those devices and their technologies. I'm thinking about how this all connects into 
how the power games in the world could change. And for the United States, this is gonna be important too. If we continue to focus on oil and gas, which we will need to because we rely on it for many things, we need to phase towards something else. As the world phases towards something else, we cannot disrupt the system. An example of a disruption that's already happened in Canada, in Ohio, and in Wyoming is the shutting down of coal generating stations and coal mines. A lot of people were thrown out of work and Canada, Ohio, and Wyoming are working hard to make sure these people find jobs and that the communities that they were in simply don't disappear. Are there uncertainties in all of this? Of course. Do I have the answers to what might happen? No, but I've been thinking about it for a long time. I don't think anyone does. There are lots of free variables in this. There are lots of opportunities, but we need to research, plan, and move forward. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sullivan. Um, well, I tell you, as a um, uh, lecturer myself, I gotta tell you, I, I have mad props to your professional skills. It sounds like poetry compared to uh, what I normally produce. So let's um, go into the questions now. If you would have a question for Dr. Sullivan, and I'm sure you do, please just put them up in the chat. I will collate them and ask them to Dr. Sullivan so we can formulate on the answer. I'll ask a question just to get the ball rolling. How do you see energy systems changing in the Middle East and North Africa in the short term and then in the slightly longer term? Is there going to be change or are they going to continue to uh, focus on the hydrocarbon-based economy? Well, many will try to focus on the hydrocarbon-based economy. The, uh, the Saudi oil minister said the other day that he's going to work to get the oil out until the last drop. Well, I'm sorry, sir, maybe we could chat about this if that's a possibility, because that's not the way the economics of oil work, as I'm sure you know. You don't wait until the last drop. In most oil fields, you don't get 20 to 30 percent, 7 percent out of the field anyway. Too expensive. Right now, the major sources of energy for the Middle East and North Africa are oil and natural gas by far. Very few countries are actually moving forward other than a sliver of a change on their graphs toward wind and solar, and certainly not toward geothermal. There are massive geothermal reserves in the west and northwest of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is looking into this. This could be a great change for them, and also would be a way for them to produce electricity without burning more of its oil. Morocco has one of the biggest solar plants named Noor. They have a lot of sun. They don't have much natural gas and water or, or oil. Egypt is heading toward wind and solar. And they just recently made a deal with the Russians, unfortunately, for four large nuclear power plants to be put on their north coast. This gives a great deal of leverage to the Russians. The people who are controlling the, the nuclear exports to the Middle East and North Africa are the Russians and the Chinese. We're not even in the game. We have to get in that game. The UAE is starting to move forward with alternative energy. Uh, I had the, their energy minister into my NDU class. I can't tell you what he said to us, but what I can say is that the UAE is really seriously looking toward renewable energy. 
They have Mazdar. They have energy research institutes. They are one of the, the people that are vanguards looking at energy change in the Middle East. The Saudis, the Emirates, and other Gulf states have the money to do this. Countries like Morocco and Egypt or Jordan, which is also looking more at solar, was looking at nuclear but gave it up, is looking at wind but found out that the wind vanes were a lot rarer than normal. By the way, most of these solar facilities, solar technologies and wind technologies that the Middle East is importing are from China. So Chinese influence will increase unless we, the United States and Europe, get more with the program and start developing our own solar and wind technologies to compete <coughs> with the Chinese. Uh, by the way, the Chinese stole the technology and then placed their names on it. I have lots of stories on that one. Uh, it's kind of copy and paste. Uh, a very interesting story, a, a US wind farm uh, manufacturer. Inside of the, the, the uh, wind vane, there's a sophisticated computer system, almost as sophisticated as the 747. And there's a source code. That source code defines how that wind vane works, when it shuts down, how it moves with the wind and all that. A Chinese company was having trouble with this wind vane. So they called up the American company to look into it. They opened up the computer system and the wind vane and realized the Chinese downloaded it. Within a few years, that American wind vane company was bankrupt. This is happening all across the board in many industries and certainly in the energy industry. And if the world is thinking of moving from oil and gas to new energies like wind and solar in particular, not so much geothermal because we're very good at that. Not so much in hydrogen, because we're on the game in this, as is Japan. What we need, sorry to interject on this, not only to help ourselves, the United States, but also to help our allies and friends, is to have a global supply chain alliance to compete with the Chinese. So when this energy transition happens, we will not be left behind, not only in the energy transition and the investments associated with that, but also the power associated with that. I hope that answers your question, Dave. Yeah, thank you. So um, what, would, what should the prioritization be for energy research and development in the Middle East and North Africa? Batteries, wind, geothermal, uh, nuclear, what would you recommend? Well, nuclear, the... Uh, I would say they should turn to the United States and SMRs. And of course, there's a good reason for that. The UAE turned to us for a one, two, three agreement, which protects them from certain responses throughout the world. A, a Korean company actually built that nuclear power plant. Uh, there's the King Abdullah Science uh, Atomic City. Uh, the Saudis are looking into that atomic research. Uh, unfortunately, the Russians and the <coughs> Chinese are helping them on this. Uh, every country has a right to do its own research, but with regard to nuclear, it has to fulfill IEAE guidelines. And they need inspectors in to see what's going on. We know the trouble we're having with Iran. For Saudi Arabia, I would definitely focus on geothermal, massive potential, solar and wind. If anyone has been in the valleys of Saudi Arabia on a windy day, 
there's a lot of power there. And also there's a, a chance for wave energy, although the waves in the Gulf are not that big. In the Red Sea, it can be productive if the right wind, uh, wave energy system is developed. The UAE is looking into solar and wind, not so much geothermal, they're looking into batteries. They often have expats doing this research for them. A lot can be done by simply training the people in the region, and this is vital, in the scientists, much like King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia and uh, the leadership of UAE has been doing with their people. Send them throughout the world to understand these technologies so they can be applied to the countries themselves. Often these technologies develop for the United States, for Germany, for Japan. There have to be tweaks to make them work in a place like the UAE in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Oman. Solar panels uh, can work in non-dusty places. In very dusty places, it can affect their, their capacity of production. Uh, so you really have to have some people on the ground who can develop the tweaks, the blue collar, when, it's not an insult, it's just that's what it is, that's what it's called in the literature, the blue collar petty patents, the small changes that are needed to make something more applicable, more adaptive to a country. And then in the future, once they get all this education, they can become an innovation invention center. Look back in time, folks. How many inventions and things that we have every single day came from the Middle East at one time? At one time, the Middle East and North Africa were some of the most creative, inventive places on the planet. There's no reason, no reason that the energy transition could not help that region become that again. And this may also stabilize the region because oil and gas are not labor using jobs. If you walk on a refinery, you walk under an oil field, you don't see many people. If you walk into a geothermal field, you're not gonna see many people, but you need a lot of people to build those wind vanes, to build those solar farms, and to build the batteries. And there's learning by doing that happens. Learning by doing is vital. If you have the best and brightest in the region, learning about these technologies, looking for a better future, you know what also happens? Hope is developed. And hope in these times is sometimes more important than food. I hope that helps, Dave. No, that's a great answer. Um, I, I particularly like that you highlighted um, most of the investment in the region is at higher level science. It's, it's training people as scientists and engineers at a high level. But in order to really have this functioning industry, you have to have, you know, for example, trained welders. You, know, you have to have craftsmen, uh, really artisans almost. And, and um, this isn't a problem just in the Middle East. I mean, when Australia tried to develop a domestic submarine, they realized that they have world-class naval engineers. They have world-class scientists. They didn't have welders who could actually weld a submarine hull. And the work on that had to be outsourced to um, uh, Japan. And uh, now there's this national uh, welding initiative in Australia. So um, we're seeing this as kind of incomplete in the Middle East. So thank it, you for that. It, it, How do you another, assess? Sorry. sorry, Dave. Another part of this is if you, you have a solar plant or a wind facility and something goes wrong, having a bunch of MAs in engineering and PhDs and solar technology is not going to help. You have to have the guys that know how to use the wrenches <laughs> and the hammers. 
Sometimes the solution is you just hit it in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. It's a good, it's a good point. Um, my undergraduate degree uh, was kind of in engineering. And uh, whenever we have something broken in the house, my wife says, okay, engineer, fix it. And the running joke is I always say, I'm not that kind of engineer. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Roche, so, may I ask a question? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, Dr. Anthony here. Uh, two unrelated ones, but I didn't uh, hear you uh, allude to either of them in your uh, prepared remarks, uh, Dr. Sullivan. One is the phrase NIMBY, N, N as in Nancy, I-M-B-Y, meaning not in my backyard. And when we had the Hurricane Katrina and its effect on uh, New Orleans and other ones in South Texas, um, uh, this was a national security challenge threat issue for the United States. Uh, can you comment on what passes for established thought or informed opinion that the United States has had not had a new significant refinery built in the last three decades, uh, with the partial exception of ExxonMobil's uh, massive investment in extending the existing uh, refinery apparatus in Port Arthur, uh, Texas. That's one question on the political, geopolitical aspects of the United States on this uh, conservatives of, of people not wanting a refinery to be anywhere near them and how this affects America's national security and related interests. And the unrelated ones have to do with uh, Oman and Bahrain. Um, Bahrain is, as you mentioned, en energy uh, dependent. Uh, with a close relationship, Saudi Arabia in that regard, uh, and also it's an energy exporter through its refinery. Um, and people think of the U.S. Naval uh, Command component of U.S. Central Command being based in Bahrain, where we have dropped anchor for longer than we have anywhere else in the Middle East, North Africa region since the late 1940s. It's not just Bahrain's interest or our interest with Bahrain. But that naval uh, presence there affects every single country in Eastern Arabia and the Gulf, including Iran, including uh, Iraq, uh, their imports and their exports. And the other end of this is Oman, with the strategic uh, Straits of Hormuz there, that this has made Oman globally uh, vital, strategically and economically, and in terms of country's national security. With the recent uh, news reporting that Iran has now achieved a capacity to itself not be reliant on the Hormuz Strait, how, if at all, does this change the geopolitics or the geoeconomics or the national security and the international security issues, challenges, and interest uh, in these oil and gas producing countries? I think in the last one, and I'll take that first, you're talking about JESC and the port near it, which is outside of the Straits of Hormuz and in Iranian territories. They can now move the oil to this port and export it from this oil port, which it will be, outside of the Straits. Before the building of this port, there were islands like Lavan and Siri inside of the Straits of Hormuz. And Iran regularly threatened to shut down the Strait of Hormuz. If they shut down the Strait of Hormuz, they would choke off their own oil exports. 
because their oil exports came from within, north of the Strait of Hormuz. With this new port, it's not going to be to the capacity of Lebanon, Syria, and it's not going to be the capacity that Iran could export its oil. But it is going to change it slightly. And it's going to change the psychology as well. But the biggest psychology change for the region with regard to their own national securities uh, revolves around what's happening in Afghanistan and what's happening with the JCPOA, the nuclear deal with Iran. And also, I'm sorry to bring this up, and I'm sure enough people have enough on their mind about Afghanistan and the Taliban. This place will be a center of terrorism. The Taliban are not fooling me, and they're not fooling you, gentlemen, I'm sure, that they're becoming nice. They have too much history, and tigers don't change their stripes. And all kinds of groups will be going to that country for training. We now have a major terrorist group that controls a country of 40 million people with minerals and other resources worth a trillion dollars, with borders on very important and some unstable countries. Uh, those of you who are listening to this who don't know about the Wakan Corridor, take a look at that. It can make a big difference in Chinese. Afghan relations. And I, my guess is the Chinese are going to get bitten on this one. Uh, when it comes to the Oman's importance, it will remain that way with the United States for a long time to come because of our facilities offshore and our long-term relations with Oman. Oman is an ex has extremely clever leadership uh, that uh, works the fence. And it's to their benefit and for some of the Americans listening here, every country has its own national interest. And if they are not exactly in line with ours, we should understand them and work with them. And that's very important for a country like Oman, which is having significant economic difficulties right now. Its oil and gas will not last long unless there are, are new supplies discovered. With regard to the fifth fleet, it's important that we stay in the Middle East. And it's not for what the usual arguments that you hear about, we need to be there to uh, protect Israel, to protect our allies and partners and so forth. There's one thing that very few people think about that's related to my talk. It's called virtual oil and gas. Virtual oil and gas. Many of you probably never heard about this. Actually, I'm not sure that I coined it or someone else did, but I've been teaching about it for years. Virtual oil goes like this. If you have a lot of Saudi oil and Qatari natural gas going to China, India, Europe, and so forth, we buy stuff made with that natural gas. It's embedded into the products we purchase. It's embedded into the projects or the products that are exported throughout the world. The oil and gas from the Gulf region, from the entire Middle East and North Africa, including Algeria, including Egypt, is vital to the world trade system because of the importance of virtual oil and natural gas. If we protect the sea lanes, the slocks, the sea lanes of communications, to keep this gas and oil flowing, most people think of oil, but natural gas goes by these gigantic LNG container ships, the 
They get to Europe, they go through the Red Sea, they go through the Suez Canal, all sorts of things could happen. And to get to India, they cross the Indian Ocean and through that area, think about the Taliban, think about Pakistan, think about extremists. There are gonna be some issues coming along the line. I don't know exactly how this is gonna play out, but I'm nervous about having a terrorist state and also a narco state. When you have that kind of moral, I'm not sure what the word is, I don't wanna get into trouble to use a certain word, ineptitude or perversion, anything can happen. I think it's vital that the fifth fleet remain also because of the Chinese bases in Djibouti and the increasing importance of China and Russia in the Gulf. There are Chinese ships in the Gulf every once in a while. The Chinese are the biggest trading partner with many of the countries in the Gulf and North Africa. They are increasing their influence with the Belt and Road Initiative. If we move out of the Middle East, after a while, game over. Our influence will wane. Right now, our credibility is in question. This is the wrong time to even mention leaving the region. And once again, showing our partners and allies that we don't stay with the game. Well, the NIMBY part, the NIMBY oh, part. Oh, sorry about that. NIMBY uh, is now banana in many places. Build absolutely nothing, absolutely nowhere, anytime. Uh, and our refineries have been shutting down. We're not building new ones. The way we have been keeping these refineries going is to refit them. And refitting them can cost massive amounts of money because of lawsuits against the refiners. Uh, John Hoffmeister, God rest his soul, told me about a problem he had uh, extending its refinery and refitting it for safety. It costs somewhere, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, $250 million in legal fees alone to change this refinery to improve it. Uh, NGOs, they have their objectives. Law firms always win on this. Uh, so who, how many of you would want a, an oil refinery in your backyard? I visited the Motiva refinery. Uh, I think it's still owned by the Saudis, by the way. Uh, and it's a massive refinery. It's quite old, but it's been refitted many times. You don't get a refinery like that. You don't get around a refinery like that without a minibus or bicycles. That's how you go from place to place. It's gigantic. It costs billions to build something like that. Now, we cannot replace these things. This is part of the problem I have with the people who are saying shut down the refineries. If you shut down a refinery, the decommissioning costs are gigantic. The recommissioning costs would be stratospheric. You don't shut these things down and turn them on again. Nuclear power plants, you can do that once every 12 to 18 months to change fuel. You can't do that every day like you can with a solar or wind farm or a natural gas generating system. Each of these energy technologies has its limitations of startup, shutoff, and moderating what they can do. If you start up and shut down a nuclear power plant many times, you're gonna break it. And the last thing you wanna do is break a nuclear power plant. Another strange thing about the NIMBY thing and nuclear, nuclear energy is the safest energy source given the data on fatalities and 
pollution and so forth. It's also mostly carbon and greenhouse gas free, except for the extraction of uranium. We cannot have an energy transition toward a low carbon environment, as many people are talking about, without nuclear power being part of it. If we don't have nuclear part of this, then we're gonna to have to have millions of acres of solar farms and wind farms. The footprint of a nuclear power plant, let's say if we shut down all of our nuclear power plants tomorrow, I would never say to do that. If we did that, we'd have to build, for example, wind vanes covering all the state of Wisconsin and most of Illinois to make up for all that power that we lose. Nuclear power plants are shutting down now because of economics and how cheap natural gas was for so long. And also because of legal things. Indian Point was shut down in New York uh, because of uh, legal suits. It was harassment suits. And now New York and the areas that use the, the energy from Indian Point have to make up the difference and they're having real troubles with that. Nuclear power can be done safely. SMRs, the modular reactors, the small modular reactors have lots of passive safety into them. I would recommend all those folks in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and other places <clears throat> in the Middle East that are at least stable countries with stable governments to look hard at SMRs as alternatives. They can be built in a safe way. They can get through the one, two, three agreements. By the way, if there's a, a nuclear power plant exported from the United States that is not a one, two, three agreement, that would make the one, two, three agreement with the UAE, which Yusuf Al-Taiba worked so hard to make happen, as we all know, it would be nullified. That's in the agreement. We have to be very careful with how things develop in the region. We have to be very careful what country gets hold of some of this technology. A good thing about solar and, and wind, it's not exactly movable. It's not irradiating. It's very hard to turn them into weapon systems. But the problem with that in places where there is a lot of terrorism is that you can take these things out. You can cyber attack renewable energy. You have to be very careful on that too. Look what's happening in Iraq with the electricity pylons. Dave, I'm sure you remember this a, a while back. Blow up a pylon, the Americans wait three days, check the security situation, build a new pylon, go back to the FOB, they blow it up again. Rinse and repeat. We have to change many of our energy systems, our electricity systems to microgrids. Centralized energy systems will become much more vulnerable in the future, particularly with regard to cyber. If you have a microgrid, and this is something the military is thinking about, if the central grid is hacked, you disconnect and you have your own microgrid for the base or for your municipality or your community. As the world gets riskier, and sorry folks, it will. Think of population growth, think of economic stress, Think of post-COVID instability. And I'm not being a pessimist on this. If you look in history, when there were big economic shocks and pandemics, as countries got out of this, there were revolutions. 
there were instabilities, but there was also a great time of invention in art and science. Maybe it's because people were sitting at home thinking a lot, or maybe they weren't thinking and they got lazy and they thought, okay, I have to make up for all that time I wasted. Pandemics have effects that go beyond the pandemic. And country like India, what happened with that pandemic? Iran is looking at great instability. I looked at the numbers today, 100,000 people officially died from COVID. Think of all the families, the moms, the dads, the grandparents, the children, the nephews, the uncles, the aunts that lost people because of rank incompetence. That's the way they're gonna see it. And who are they gonna blame? Well, some will blame the United States. That's the target of opportunity for a lot of people. But also think of this country, when we get out of COVID, the huge unemployment, the disruptions, the destruction of hope, what's gonna happen? I don't think we're thinking this through. And the time it took us, and the time it took the United Kingdom to get a handle on this, people remember that. When people die, it's a traumatic event. And traumatic events are the things we remember the most. So yes, NIMBY and banana, but also insecurity and security and the change in the world, social system, change in world social contracts. I would like to land this on an optimistic note. The optimistic note is we have lots of technologies that can clean up the atmosphere, that can reduce greenhouse gas effects. Greenhouse gas effects are real. Global warming, climate change is real. We need to do something about it, but not at the expense of disruptions after a huge disruption like COVID. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Well, we kind of um, have come to the end of this and I had a number of questions queued up, but I got to tell you, you, you've touched on almost every one of them. And while you were speaking, you reminded me of Orson Welles in that great uh, movie, The Third Man with Joseph Cotton, where he delivers a um, speech on a, on a Ferris wheel, where he says, uh, Italy in the 1500s was characterized by tyranny, warfare, and plague, but it produced the Renaissance. Switzerland had 500 years of peace and came up with the cuckoo clock. Uh, so hopefully uh, these challenges that you've identified and the need for invention will spur it, uh, just as Orson Welles uh, noted in the third man. Uh, we're running out of time, so Dr. Anthony, I think I'll leave you the uh, last summing words uh, just to thank Dr. Sullivan for his shared wisdom and uh, for the expert prognosis on what is to be done and what the most promising technology is for that. So Dr. Anthony, let me hand off to you, please. Thank you, Professor uh, DeRoche and Dr. Sullivan. Um, one or two uh, parting questions, if you could address them, please. Uh, 40, 50 years ago, when the uh, last or Arab oil embargo occurred in the October 73 war, um, and people focused on these countries having nothing but oil and gas. Can't drink it, have to export it. It's finite, it's depletable. Uh, its shelf life is, is limited. We cannot plan, we cannot predict, we cannot anticipate to anywhere near the same de degree we could with, with coal and with the other things that you're mentioning that are yet to come on screen, the geothermal and tidal and, and, and things of that, that nature. Uh, in the intervening uh, decades, uh, you have had 
several of these countries uh, excel in transportation, becoming transportation hubs. I mean, uh, Qatar Airways wins annually just about every award for superior uh, excellence in service and facilities uh, uh, that is available to be won. Likewise with Emirates Airways and Al Ittihad. So these are uh, new revenue streams on top of which there's tourism, especially in the case of, of, of Oman, uh, but uh, Dubai and uh, even Saudi Arabia, uh, additional revenue streams, not directly dependent upon oil and gas, although certainly indirectly tied and linked to them. And lastly, but not least at all, the sovereign wealth funds and the international geopolitical and economic clout that comes from uh, at least four of the GCC countries that have sovereign wealth funds, Kuwait being the first, the pioneer, the leader, uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, uh, these four. And look at the influence that they have been having. Just look at uh, Thomas Barak, uh, Trump's uh, uh, personal advisor, uh, who benefited enormously by looking out for the interest of the United Arab Emirates on policy-related matters. And one of the investment companies that he's been closely associated with directly benefiting from infusions of capital and investments from these sovereign wealth funds. So uh, might you comment on these additional revenue streams and the implications of them over and beyond oil and gas, uh, as well as drones. Nobody has touched on that, though you tiptoed near it. Uh, that uh, how embarrassing this has to have been for the US aerospace and defense industry for all the tens of millions and deep billions that have been invested in these countries to provide them with effective air defense systems, only to have very cheap and expensive, low technology drones come in beyond and under these defense systems to attack the nerve centers of uh, Eastern Arabia's oil and gas industries. Any parting comments that you might have on these things that also seem to be relevant would be much welcome and appreciated. Dr. Sullivan. Well, John Duke, that's a, a lot to take in. And uh, I'll, I'll start with the drones. The first mover on a new technology for military, it's always more expensive for them to develop the technology. It, it's easy and less expensive to copy it and to make a simplified version of it. To make a simplified drone, uh, Dave, you have any idea how much those would cost the, the Houthis in Iran to make? Probably a lot less than ours. We're down into under $2,000. Well, you see, that opens up the democratization of uh, deadly force. And also the extremization, if that's a word, of deadly force. And it makes things less predictable, as John Duke mentioned. Diversification will remain vital for this region to move forward. Tourism, thinking of Neom and Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt is developing new cities, new tourist villages, improving them. Morocco is going along the way. Dubai is a big tourist hub. 
Uh, the airlines, by the way, gets back to my comment about developing your own technology. The day that we have a Gulf state or a Middle East, North Africa state develop its own aircraft is the day that they will have a leadership position much more in airlines and transport in the air. Buying aircraft and have a very well-run airline is one step, very expensive step. It's an important one. It's a source of revenue. The countries of the Middle East and North Africa have mostly diversified much more than the time period you were talking about in the 1960s, some more than others. Uh, and then there are the basket case countries of Syria, Yemen, and Libya. Uh, what Libya's revenues now are mostly oil and gas back to the way it used to be, and gun smuggling, people smuggling, which is not something one should be proud of. But focusing back on the Gulf, it would be an important set of ideas and thoughts for the Omanis, the Bahrainis, the Emiratis, Kuwaitis, and the Saudis to look toward more diversification that fits in with their culture and with their economic, technical, and education environment. Going forward with this diversification can help those other environments that I just mentioned, can help education, can help the labor environment, can even help the environment, clean it up. Uh, Saudi Arabia is facing huge unemployment among us. Housing problems as well. Diversification can help resolve those issues. But it's even more important that we have the countries of the regions work together as much as possible on these pool resources. I know that's difficult for some, and some might find this heretical. But if the region becomes a center of, let's say, railroads, center of tourism, center of trade, center of ports, that's already starting up, it's happening to a great extent, each and every country can benefit by working with the others. And on that note, uh, the most possible positive possible uh, message of hope and cooperation. I have to note that we're over time. I want to thank Dr. Sullivan, Dr. Anthony. I apologize to all those who had questions that we uh, didn't get to, but I must say, uh, I think Dr. Sullivan touched on pretty much every question raised even before it was raised in his remarks. So thank you very much on behalf of the National Council of U.S. Arab Relations. Um, please watch the website and look for further events of this nature. And uh, Please uh, feel free to comment and extend your thanks to Dr. Sullivan on the uh, YouTube and the National Council website. Thank you very much and have a good morning. Thank you. And if anyone has any further questions, maybe they were directed through the National Council to me and I, I will answer them or try my best to answer them. And I'm pretty sure many of you listening in already know how to contact me. So be well, be safe. Let's see that region develop. Thank you.